it is very true that broadly speaking, gender identity expansion is not new. It is equally true that that statistics show us now in surveys broadly of um, folks in the United States in particular, that like two to three times as many millennials identify as exploring their gender identity or not identifying squarely with boxes. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and boy, do I have a powerful and in-depth episode for you today. I'm bringing back to the show Dr. Laura Anderson, a clinical child and family psychologist who has worked with youth and families for over 20 years. Laura's areas of expertise include school-based behavioral health, assessment, support for adoptive families, as well as support for LGBTQ plus youth and their families. Laura is also a parent, and in her trainings, she shares tips for parents based on the experience she has gathered from the vantage point of both her office couch and her family's living room couch. Laura also has a new podcast out called Real World Parenting, Tips and Scripts for Families on Roads Less Traveled. And I will say I had the pleasure of being a guest on Laura's show not too long ago. But for this conversation today, We once again focused on the topic of gender identity in the differently wired community. We talked about the new and ever-changing terminology when looking at gender, including what gender non-conforming, gender expansive, transgender, and non-binary actually means, as well as the unique needs that differently wired kids who are part of the LGBTQ plus community have, and how we as parents and caregivers and educators can support them without pressuring them. Lastly, Laura also shares some great tips on how to communicate with your family and friends when your kiddo changes pronouns. And a heads up, this is an extra long episode, but it is so, so good. I hope you get a lot out of it. And a quick reminder that with this season of the podcast, I've also started Playback Fridays, whereby every Friday I'll be re-releasing a powerful episode from my library. Tune in for episodes with people like the out-of-sync child author, Cal Kronowitz, author of The Explosive Child, Dr. Ross Green, NeuroTribes author, Steve Silberman, my original Asher specials, and much, much more. If you're already subscribed to the podcast, you don't have to do anything. Just keep an eye out for new episodes on Fridays showing up in your podcast feed. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Laura Anderson. Hey, Laura, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And in preparing for it, I realized it's been over three years since you were on the show. I felt like it was a year ago. So much has changed and and we'll get into that. But before we kind of get into the meat of our conversation, could you take a few minutes and introduce yourself, you know, in your own words, I've already read your bio, but tell us a little bit about who you are and where your work is focused right now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I can't believe it's been three years. That is it's amazing. And, and what an interesting three years. But yeah, so I am a licensed child and family psychologist. I've been licensed since the late 90s now, always working with kids and teens and their caregivers. And in the last seven-ish or more years, and a deeper dive into gender identity development and kids and teens, LGBTQ plus support for families so kids and families thrive in that time. Do lots of supports of school, home, interface, and just basically really, I think I hang out a lot in a world where parents are raising children on different journeys from their own. That's kind of how like, like help in the translation, (laughs) building bridges as we understand our kids paths when they're when their identity navigation at a core is pretty different from from our own as parents. And I'm a mom, uh, perhaps most importantly informed in, in this and a mom who's learned a lot about this issue for personal and professional reasons. So yeah, I love the way you put that, because I think that is really the most challenging part for so many parents who have children on a different gender journey, even more so, I think, than just having a neurodivergent kid. Because for most parents, it is so 
different from their own experience. And so there's, I love that you talk about translating that because it's so necessary. Yes, I think absolutely. And then one of the things I talk about when I talk about this issue, that's sort of a great starting point in terms of how I discuss this as a, as a, a gentle reminder to folks that we, we all have what I use the word soji in, in presentations that I do, sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. So, so often when we talk about this, we, we sort of shine a light on LGBTQ plus folks and, and, and learn about them or try to learn about them. And one of the very first places we start is recognizing we ourselves had our own sexual orientation journey, our own gender identity journey. We make decisions about our gender expression every single day. But if you are cisgender, if your internal felt sense, if your head and your heart happen to line up with your parts is how I say it, right? And, and for, you know, 85 to 90% of the population, as best we know now, it does. So for cisgender folks, if you've navigated a gender journey, you maybe didn't have to think about it as actively as um, folks who are walking on a broader path around their gender identity. So if you're if you have the privilege of being cisgender, so aligned head, heart and parts and straight heterosexual, then maybe as much mental, emotional energy didn't go. You weren't co as consciously aware because it's mainstream and around you. But I always invite parents to stop and think and get curious about how they knew what they know about their own sexual orientation, gender identity, and how they make their gender expression decisions. Because understanding that will help them understand and trust and believe what their kids are communicating. I love all the language you use and head, hearts, and parts. And it, it's so helpful because this is new landscape for so many parents. And you talked about cisgender, and that is, as you described, when your your head, heart, and parts are all in alignment. I think uh, I'm saying that right. But could you define, just so we have kind of like a foundation for this conversation, the three words or terms that I think would be helpful and please, if there are more um, that you think are important for this do, but gender nonconforming, transgender and non-binary for us. Yes, those are great. And, and here's a quick nod about language. It's changing probably every nanosecond. And, and, like, and it's also important if this is a journey that you're on as a parent or as an ally of a parent, that you do try to keep a little bit in touch and abreast because, because both are true. They're changing. The language changes. Kids are keeping us on our toes. And it, it is important to try to, to keep learning. So I, And I appreciate the ask to try to help establish an understanding. So gender nonconforming is a word that, that I think it's used broadly to say like, hey, this world is gendered. Before kids are born, we have expectations based on what we're told their sex is going to be assigned at birth. We say gender, by the way, but it's actually their sex assigned at birth, right? And so the world is heavily gendered. Expectations based on whether or not you believe you're raising a girl child or a boy child are, are very locked in. When kids are doing things that are unexpected for their sex assigned at birth, broadly sort of gender non-conforming means not following, not conforming with the expected social rules that have been in place and passed down over time in various cultures around the world. So initially gender non-conforming was used a, a lot, I would say, in the community of gender professionals. And, and then it was sort of like, well, we don't want to make it sound like like non-white almost in a way <laughs> where it became where it was sort of like I don't know we don't necessarily want to make it sound like there's some defiance in there that is a problem or is the exception to the rule so I, I the word that that I hear used a little bit more often now but it captures the same idea is gender expansive so expanding what's expected for and what is acceptable and what is okay for kids of all gender identities and sexes assigned at birth. Both communicate the same thing. It's not that using non-conforming is a foul anyway. It still communicates like doing things that are 
I like the word unexpected. I think it's especially great for folks. And I think I, we talked about it years ago as a way to talk about, and especially for um, folks who are neurodiverse or on the autism spectrum, this idea of, of helping kids understand that it isn't that what you're doing is different or weird or unusual. Or like sometimes when we use language with kids, we'll say, most boys, bada, bada, ba kind of a thing. And that accidentally com- uh, communicates a normalcy rather than saying, hey, we have these rules. And when you do something unexpected in your clothing choice or in your, um, you know, friendship choices, if you do something unexpected based on these old school rules, it comes to people's attention. So broadly speaking, gender nonconforming and gender expansive just mean kind of like rule breaking for these expectations that have been in place so long and, and, and noteworthy. Transgender and non-binary are interesting to talk about together. Uh, first, starting with transgender, it broadly speaking is when your head and heart are the way that I use language with kids is when your head and your heart are telling a different story than your parts. So your sex assigned at birth puts you into you know two categories, where there's a third category, intersex, that happens with less frequency, but is important to recognize too. So there are three categories. You either get put into male, female, or intersex. And for folks that those categories do not fit, describe how masculine, feminine, male, female, both or neither they feel when, when the part doesn't line up with what their head and their heart tells them is their gender knowing, then we use the umbrella phrase sort of transgender. It's become more of an umbrella. It just, I think the easiest way to understand it is that folks are not identifying as cisgender. There is incongruence uh, between head, heart, and parts. And so there is a need to kind of, um, uh, a, a need to have it recognized that their gender identity is broader than their sex assigned at birth or the parts that folks think they have. There isn't a direct connection. And that can be kind of an umbrella. So folks say to me, this is, you can already hear, I'm like trying to make sure because the language changes, but it's important. In the old days, transgender used to refer specifically to we're born with female parts, but are telling everybody that that box doesn't fit for them. So they needed to jump to the other box, the other binary femaleness felt wrong. Now they're jumping to maleness that that the way to be transgender was to understand that somebody was saying, I'm not who you think I am based on my parts. I am quote the opposite, right? So there was a trans, a traveling across of gender identities is what, where that word comes from in the old days. Now it is understood to invite people into a broader community around. I'm sorting through my identity. Some folks within the community remain highly binary. There is a subset of transgender folks who will say, I did move from one binary identity, from one box to the other box. That does actually fully capture my identity. I am squarely binary. It it works for me to be in this box of a binary, clearly male felt identity. And then there are a whole other range of folks in community who, who feel as if their identity is, can't be easily boxed, right? And they can also fall under a broader trans identity because it means it's not cis, it doesn't equally align or easily align. Non-binary, specifically, if, you, if we look at the word, means not of the two, not binary cannot be placed in either of those boxes. So non-binary specifically means like, yeah, either the way the language that I use for folks is that rather than feeling male or female, our old binary, uh, people who identify as non-binary express that they either feel both masculine and feminine energies or, or neither. So the old boxes of he and she or male and female do not resonate in their head and their heart. And they actually are saying that they may feel both masculine and feminine energies or, or neither. So um, those are the broad definitions. And there are those like asterisks next to transgender because it's kind of an umbrella. Non-binary um, folks 
don't subscribe to any boxes, generally speaking. They're, they would say sort of living in a, a place in between or two-spirit is some of the language from uh, Native American cultures historically. Um, so I I know that there's a little bit of overlap when you're like, wait, so so tell me in a nutshell again. I think the easiest way to recognize it is to remember non-binary folks are are some they sometimes identify as in the transgender umbrella and within that umbrella of folks whose head heart and parts don't fully align they are saying hey i'm both masculine and feminine energies or i'm neither masculine or feminine energies neither of those uh, uh fit for me i am something else that can't be boxed and then transgender folks kind of can either encapsulate everybody who's questioning their gender or they are groups of the community are more binary by nature. They, for some folks within the transgender community, it does fit to be to feel very squarely male in their head and heart, or very squarely squarely female in their head and heart. So they're overlapping concepts, but uh, distinct too. And I hope that helps. I know it can be tricky. <laughs> it is tricky, but no, it's super helpful. And I also know that there are so many other terms, which we will not get into. Um, but that is super helpful just to kind of explain the landscape here. And, you know, speaking of the landscape, so it's been three years since we did the episode and, I'm just curious because, you know, just in my awareness and the conversations I'm seeing in various communities, especially in communities that are made up of caregivers and parents who who are raising neurodivergent kids, differently wired kids, there just seems to be a lot more conversation surrounding gender identity these days. And I'm just wondering what you've seen in your work and your practice. Is is that just my perception or is there a real shift happening here? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I think so both are true. Gender diversity has been around, you know, throughout the ages. You can look back in indigenous cultures literally all around the world and there are examples of of non-binary, of these two boxes don't fit uh, ways of being in the world. And so it is very true that broadly speaking, gender identity expansion is not new. It is equally true <laughs> that that statistics show us now in surveys broadly of um, folks in the United States in particular, that like two to three times as many millennials identify as exploring their gender identity or not identifying squarely with boxes as those of us, older folks in the, you know, baby boomers and whatever, all, all in between. So young people are leading the way in saying, you know what, I think more broadly about my gender than we used to. I think the rate I saw a GLAAD survey that recently placed it at something like 12% of the people um, questioned, identified as specifically gender questioning or expansive in some way. So that's as, the way I talk to folks about it, it is like, and I had mentioned before, only it's it's really only increasing. What, what we've seen is anecdotally gender clinic numbers are going up. It comes up more in caseloads of providers. And then now the research is kind of catching up to that. So it was like 12 to 15%, I think upwards in one survey, almost 17% of people ages 15 to 25 or 27 or something. So it's more than the percentage of folks that are left-handed. I think three years ago, I would have said it's about the same of folks who are left. It's like more than left-handed people now. So when we think about how small or specialized a population this is, quote unquote, then we have to start looking at the reality that more and more young people are telling us the way they've been taught to think about categorizing their gender into two categories just doesn't doesn't fit anymore for them and that they experience their internal senses of gender with a lot more um, expansion and possibility than than we did as, as, as older folks. <laughs> you mentioned that, especially here in the United States, and I have heard that before. And I'm wondering why, why that is. And maybe that leads into the this question of, is this 
a trend? Is this something that's trendy right now in the way that maybe exploring sexual orientation in high school and college became kind of trendy 15 or so years ago? Yeah, I think that's a great question. A couple of thoughts. Even when when I stay here in the U.S., it's largely because that's that's a lot of the data that I see. It is also true that gender clinics are cropping up around the world. They're busy. Europe, you know, cranks out numbers on 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 kids. So I think it's safe to say that broadly there is an uptick of folks exploring this in the world. But the more important part of your question, I think, which is really important for parents and comes up a lot in my work is, is this a trend? Is this just something to say you're doing as part of pushing back against the establishment, you know, in adolescence? Like part of adolescence is to define who you are. And a big piece of that is, is who you're not, right? Well, I'm not that expectation of me and I'm not going to do that and I'm not going to do that. So a lot of parents come in saying or thinking to me, you know, I think they're seeing this all on the internet. I think this is, you know, they found this group of friends and all of them are, are exploring gender at this point. And I don't know how seriously to take it, or I'm afraid to make decisions around this stuff because, because what if this is just a trend? And, and this is another one of those both are true statements, right? There's a lot more in media. There's a lot more online. There are a lot more folks giving their firsthand experience around gender expansive living and knowing. And so kids are exposed to the language around this stuff and the language of possibility more than they would have been in the past. The other thing that I can tell you that is equally true is that if, if permission was the only thing that was needed to make this a thing, if this was kids were just trying this on as trendy then I wouldn't spend as much time with as many young people in distress. It, it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky topic because for young non-binary and trans teens who are experiencing how uncomfortable it is to go against the grain, the judgments that other people have about them, the assumption that it is frivolous and trendy from some folks is really hard to sit with. And I support many young people who, who are persisting around this internal knowing, even when the world gives them a lot of feedback that it's not okay. So I hear, interestingly, you can hear the emotion in my voice. Um, interestingly, a lot of in my world, I have a lot of great, well-meaning, progressive, cisgender, hetero parents and friends who are figuring out how to be allies. And I hear a lot from from folks who are in that position, who are raising, doing their best to raise progressive kids, have circles that are diverse in terms of gender identity or sexual orientation. And over and over again, I hear them say, you know what, all the kids are doing it. Kids don't care anymore at all about another person's gender identity. And, and yet my caseload is full of young people who are getting a lot of pushback about living in the space in between these binary boxes or identifying as trans. So is there more information out there? Yes. Could there be that kids are getting access to? Could there be a percentage of kids who are adding this into a curiosity about how they're going to define themselves and and how that's going to, you know, how they're going to form identities? Sure. But I don't see that as, as the majority of kids, right? I don't. I think at a certain point, there's a level of commitment that gets involved in terms of taking risks socially with changing pronouns or changing names or correcting folks or calling attention to your, your, your style because it's gender mixed or gender fluid um, that, that often comes with discord. So I don't know if that answers your questions. I would say, yes, there's more information about it. My experience is there may be a small set of kids who are like actively trying it on in, you know, to get whatever cool points and to be seen as daring. 
but that's not the majority of kids that that we see and work with. And I would suggest that that is likely not to persist for kids and not to continue to be a thing because at a certain point there there's pushback and there are decisions that are made. So I, I, I think for a lot of young people in community, the idea that it, that it is trendy, um, can be painful while kids are figuring it out. And yet I know many parents ask a really valid, genuine question about that. Like, help me understand. It seems like it's everywhere. And yeah, there's more language about it, but it can still be a really um, painful internal process for some most kids that I see for sure. No, that was a great answer. Thank you for that. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So, you know, you talked about identity and specifically with regards to the core listeners for this podcast, we are parents and caregivers, some educators supporting differently wired kids. And there's obviously a high number of trans kids who are also neurodivergent. And so could you spend a little time talking about that unique intersection of needs? I I actually heard from one parent in our community who is an advocate in inpatient adolescent psychiatry and just said a huge number of kids uh, living in that intersection of being trans and neurodivergent are the kids that she's working with, that, that she's seeing in their clinic because of mental health challenges. So can you just talk a little bit about their unique needs and maybe what they're dealing with right now? Yeah. And I, the, the way that, that I think about that and is that, that all of it, all of it, meaning, you know, 
wiring, mental health, gender, sexual orientation, learning styles, to me are just sort of a beautiful, complicated web of neurology, neurodiversity, um, and that we do tend to see overlap um, for folks that that are um, that are neurodiverse. That there's a, a broader range of ways they do gender. There are um, some distinct ways that mental health issues can show up. Uh, I mentioned before one of the reasons that that we spoke three years ago is that gender clinics do see a higher percentage of folks with autism spectrum diagnoses than you'd expect given the population surrounding these gender clinics, right? So young people who sit at the intersection of an autism spectrum diagnosis end up showing up in clinic more than you, than you would expect, particularly um, those assigned female at birth. So that's a language that you can hear. People will say like, particularly people who were born girls, helpful tip for parents uh, that we talk about, they were assigned female at birth. So that lets us know something about their anatomy, but it doesn't tell us about their gender identity. So that's a way to describe that for folks. What they're dealing with is added layers of um, both beauty <laughs> and complication. And I think part of the risk is silencing one to address the other or overshadowing one to address the other. Too often in the field of mental health, and this is helpful for parents to know, and sometimes with, you know, with parents and providers, what I see is if a child has a mental health need or neurodivergence, broadly speaking, whether it's ADHD or autism or bipolar or depression or anxiety, you know, some kind of presenting issue and a gender piece, the initial instinct is to say, I think if we address that other thing, if we address the autism, or isn't this just explained by, isn't it a symptom of their autism? Isn't this a fixation? Or isn't this just because their moods go up and down? Or isn't this because they're impulsive and this is the next thing to try? And the assumption too many times in the past has been, if we treat this other thing, if we work with the depression, if we, if they, if people have experienced, um, for instance, some kind of trauma, if we treat that, then the gender stuff will resolve. When this person is more comfortable with their body or feel better about who they are broadly, then the the gender stuff will go away. Or if we if we assume this is a fixation of like the next specialized interest of an autistic child, if we wait it out then and, and, and work through the autism piece, then the gender stuff will go away. That approach has done a lot of accidental harm. Because for kids who are feeling intensely disconnected and incongruent in their bodies, doing nothing around their gender identities while treating depression or trying to ride out autism specialized interests without taking an active exploration of gender is doing something. So doing nothing is doing something. Approach one would be assuming that gender is best understood as a side effect or a symptom of something else and and not helping a child get clarity, not helping them live in it in a variety of ways. And we'll talk about all the ways to help kids explore, I hope, because um, parents also get a little emotional and, and lose sight of some important things in terms of how you support and affirm a child. But path one would be focusing on the other areas of neurodivergence, assuming that the gender will, will resolve itself. It's also unfair to assume or to put all your energy into only doing affirmation of a child, thinking that if the gender piece is 100% in the clear, then all of these other issues will go away, right? So it's a very much a, a two-pronged, in my opinion, approach. It's, a, it's possible to be affirming of a child's exploration around their gender identity and seek support for the way that their neurodivergence informs their decision-making and their sense of self and how they understand information. So it's really, um, yes, we see an overlap of kids who have neurodiversity in some way and 
gender diversity are, are more expansive, are more open to thinking differently outside the box, ways literally around their gender. And, and all of their wholeness, I would say, invites uh, support and exploration. Okay. Uh, let me share something that came in in my Facebook group um, when on a thread regarding gender identity. And this was from a parent of an autistic assigned female birth child said, uh, I hate to say the word phase here. I don't know how, how else to describe it. This was our experience. It's a difficult path for everyone. So how can parents really support their kiddo and show unconditional love without making them feel pressure to stay a gender once they've declared it? So this is a child who assigned female birth, declared being a trans boy and now is back um, to identifying as, as female. And so how can we support our kids through this in that way, you know, talked about affirming while also staying open? How do we show up to that? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, and it's so beautiful in terms of like the tilt parenting community, right? Tilt, we, I'm, as I'm sitting here, you can't see me, but I have my head tilted <laughs> As I'm thinking about how to explain this, because it really begs for grownups in a young person's life to to be open to reimagining what they thought they knew. It literally means being able to shake this image in your head of boxes or a line. We used to say that gender, you know, was two boxes. That's limiting. Even when we talk about gender spectrum and gender, anybody listening here now needs to hop right onto gender spectrum in whatever social media they can. Genderspectrum.org is the epicenter of a lot of information that supports young people. And, and so, but even calling there, they sort of chuckle, even calling gender a spectrum suggests it's a line. And I hear people all the time talk about going one place and then what if they go back, right? Parents' primary fear around this stuff is... I, fears in the extremes. I get fears from parents that are, I don't want to say no to things that my child needs, but I don't want to say yes to too much either. Like, where is that sweet spot in the middle where I say yes in ways that will support my child in the long term in their life, not just in the next three months. I don't want to say yes to irreversible things or to setting my child up to be an outlier in society or to always live in a space in between and get targeted for that, right? Our, our parent worries get in front of our kid's experience. And, and one of the ways that we talk about gender now is instead of a box or a line, imagine that it's a web <laughs> and that, and that, a change in direction is a change in direction. It isn't a going back. It isn't a hopping into another box. It isn't backpedaling on this same line. It is actually moving through the world and getting data on your gender from two key sources. One, young people get information about their identities when there's no audience, when it's them, themselves, their bodies. How do they feel in their gendered body when there's no one around. Um, you know, for some young people, bathing is a really a time of high dysphoria. Dysphoria is a word for discomfort specific to gender. Um, so they feel um, incredible angst around uh, bathing, around mirrors. Um, interestingly enough, online classes have been really difficult for kids because when you're sitting in seventh grade in uh, real life school, you don't see an image of yourself all day. When you're looking at your face all day, for a lot of gender expansive kids, that can be tricky. So no audience. This is them in relationship to their own body and all the ways that bodies become gendered as we go through uh, puberty and are gendered. The second piece of information that they, or how they uh, integrate identity is what the world does with their gender. How are they read in the world as, as masculine, feminine, you know, both or neither. And kids are sort of factoring all of that in. And I think if we imagine that this course that they're on, if they're telling us, hey, it doesn't feel as straightforward as I thought it it's supposed to be, I hear what's expected of me, it doesn't fit for me, I want to walk forward and figure this out, the parent task is to be able to manage our own anxiety about what it means to 
break rules, to, to do unexpected things. And in some ways, parenting neurodiverse kids kind of prepares us for that too, right? Like many of us have earned our chops supporting kids who are doing unexpected things in classrooms or play dates, right? We, we sort of are practiced in the art of like, other people are going to think this is an interesting choice for my child and family, but here we go, kind of a thing, right? And so in some ways, we're a perfect pool of folks to be able to think through how to walk with our kids and to let go of our fears about ambiguity. And I, that is some of the hardest stuff that I see for parents is sitting with the ambiguity about the outcome of this stuff. The percentage of folks who do, I mean, there's even a, the, the word that you're describing is detransition, um, is really small. The folks who are headed in a clear direction and then change and head in an equally clear but very different direction um, are very, very small, especially for kids who um, express uh, a desire to expand their gender identity post-puberty. More younger kids will say things about um, feeling different in their gender and, and then that shifts before puberty begins. But if a child is into puberty and they're asserting that they have a gender identity need, the percentage of kids who, who undo that in a big way is very, it's infinitesimal. It's like 1% something of folks who do. So the parent work around how to support kids, this was another piece, and I hope it's helpful to talk about. Nine, eight out of 10 times when people come in to me and their, their child has said to them, I think I'm trans or I think I'm non-binary. Immediately people go right to surgery or hormones. It's an emotional reaction that parents have, especially those of us who didn't know much about it. For That's what we think about. We think about the old model of one box to the other, surgery, changing your body forever. Oh my gosh, wheels are spinning, hearts are racing. And, and I want to really... Um, you know, sit with parents to understand that there are a myriad of ways that young people can be supported to learn about their gender identity that don't race straight to the medical interventions. There are absolutely young people who need them to feel safe and settled and okay in their bodies. There's also a subset of folks for whom um, that medical intervention decision-making doesn't come for a long time in the process, if it comes at all. That's another important thing to say about the definitions. If a person tells you they're transgender, you don't know what that means about their parts. You don't know what it means about if they're taking hormones or not. There are some people who identify as trans who've never taken cross-sex hormones. There are some people who identify as non-binary who do not have any medical interventions. There are others who are taking hormones and still identify as non-binary. So you know very little from the label itself. And there are all kinds of ways for a young person to explore their gender. With immediate family, can they try pronouns or names and then find out how does it feel to live in it? Not because they're flippantly trying things on like an outfit, but what data are they getting with no audience when they're by themselves? How does it feel to think about using a different name or, um, or pronouns or to experiment with their gender expression, how they show their gender? It's not their identity. It's how we express our gender. Do they, you know, what's it like if they're in their room and they're trying on hairstyles or they're using makeup when they haven't before or these things that are gender coded, right? Would they wear clothing that would be considered more feminine or masculine? Try that at home. How does it feel? Can you, does it resonate with the young person? Does it not? Can their two closest friends um, use pronouns? Can they, you know, can a, a slightly larger bubble of the immediate family uh, help this child explore and live in this gender because they gather data from themselves in private and from the world around them. And all of that is affirming without racing uh, in a certain direction um, toward the medical stuff, because that's the emotional place parents go. And certainly there are kids who need it. I don't want to minimize the fact that there are kids who get to the need for hormone blockers so that puberty doesn't progress or 
cross-sex hormones, but I want to also assert for folks that those decisions should be and are made really carefully with a team of experts, an endocrinologist, a doctor, a therapist who really understands gender um, and can help you assess and decide when and what um, is right for your child. So I want to reiterate, sometimes I think people feel like it's a matter of walking in, you know, a child announces they're trans and then they're on hormones a week later. It's so much more complicated than that for all kinds of, of reasons that really serve kids and families. Um, so I don't know if that, if that helps answer. I mean, there are, there are a myriad of ways that parents can help a child walk on a journey by being open about what the world is telling them, what they're learning about themselves. Parents combat their need to know, combat your need to have it fit in a box or stay on a line, um, and be prepared to support your kid if if there are regrets. I, I want to say a quick thing about regret, too. The majority of people do not have regrets. The data is very clear with adults. I mean, I'm sure we'll get more data over time now as this young, younger generation goes through. But in the data that we have around regret, there is very, very little regret at large in the trans community. Folks who've uh, followed through with procedures or hormones or anything. But a lot of life, and I don't mean to make this sound flippant, regret is a part of life, right? We can regret the college that we went to, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have gone. We can regret a marriage that we had. And it, and it doesn't mean we never should have gone into it. We can regret decisions we made about ending a relationship. And, 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 and yet we incorporate all of those decisions into who we become later in life. And, and yes, there may be challenges evoked through some of these decisions around gender, but so much more harm has been done when kids aren't centered and listened to and trusted around what needs to happen with their gender. Far greater mistakes have been made in the name of silencing, squashing, waiting, hiding, than have there been mistakes in in like overdoing something, if that makes sense. Well, this is just so interesting. And I know it's going to be so helpful for many, many of our listeners. And I want to be respectful of the time. Just listeners, we had a little bit of a rough start. We had to try a couple of different uh, recording techniques. So tell me how you're doing time-wise, Laura, because I don't want to... I- oh, I'm good. I had a set. I'm set. So whatever you need from me, I can do for the next bit. I've got half an hour. So. <laughs> okay. Awesome. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. You talked about working with a team of, of people to help make these decisions. And that was one of the questions that came in from a parent in the community is how important is it to have our child work with a therapist who really specializes in gender identity? Bias acknowledged. <laughs> I think it's pretty important. So, so, so as I mentioned, when I began specialization in this work, I'd already been practicing almost 20 years. And there are lots of things in the world of therapy and psychology that, 
you can sort of just tweak a little bit of the knowledge that you have and learn as you go. And I'm, and again, I'm not cavalier about pretending I know stuff I don't otherwise either. But I will say that this area is a feels to me, in my humble opinion, like a real area of specialization. It's a lot to understand. Um, and it takes a lot of specialized knowledge about both the gender pieces, what language do we use with kids so that they will talk to us, um, how do we understand their their inner experiences, what is it responsible for me to know about the implications for you know, what's likely to happen if somebody takes tea? How does that impact fertility? How does it impact, um, you know, learning and attention? How there, there's a ton of like concrete knowledge to have in order to be able to help people make informed consent decisions. I'm not a medical specialist. I, I'm not responsible for understanding the ins and outs of the medical parts of this, but I do help parents and families make informed decisions and understand the implications of, of what they're deciding. And I think it's really important to have a specific pool of knowledge around um, the decisions and the dilemmas and the, and the possibilities that come with um, aspects of the gender identity piece of the medical decisions. I also think it's really important for folks to be able to do some, some supporting, helping, helping parents figure out like, you know, it, my kid is an impulsive decision maker that, and has always been, and now they're really pushing this. And how do I know if this is impulsivity that I just need to kind of sit with for a bit or, or do we go with them and how fast? And, and what about the fact that my kid has an autism spectrum diagnosis? I don't want to negate this, but, but they make decisions differently because of it. They don't understand or see safety cues the same way. And I'm worried for them. And, and so how can you help me, take what you know about autism and tie it with what you know about gender and let's come up with a plan to keep my kid, you know, informed and safe and seen and supported. And so I, for me, it feels really important to be able to have a, a supportive uh, person who understands the arc of gender development, how that shows up at different ages what kind of access you need to specialists medically, where are the clinics really doing good work around this stuff, and then also be able to do just kid stuff, you know, kid and teen and parent communication. So um, I think it's really important to find folks who aren't going to either minimize the gender piece or throw themselves into it, you know, headlong with just a little bit of information. So I think it's really important for folks to find specialists who do this a lot because it's complicated work. It's complex. It's beautiful. And it's nuanced and complicated, too. I want to talk for a moment about pronouns. And I know a lot of people talk about the language of preferred pronouns. I also hear people say it's not preferred, it's the pronoun. Um, but two questions here. You know, one parent wanted to know how you suggest families tell people if their child has changed pronouns um, or has come out as being gender nonconforming or trans. And then also how to support kids advocating when the adults, teachers, and coaches are not actually respecting their pronouns and, and using them. And, you know, that takes a hit, especially on some of these really sensitive kids to feel like they're not being seen. So can you talk about that? Yes. And absolutely. That's another piece of what a gender specialist will be able to help with is exactly because this is what happens, right? The whole family is on this journey. And and once you've allowed your child a, a, an opportunity to explore or you're going to say allowed, once there is you're living in it and you're exploring, there are a lot of decisions to make about how to communicate this stuff to other folks. And that takes really open communication with the young person in your life because no there isn't one version of how to do that, right? It It is saying, so, hey, who do you think should know in our circle? I'd like to tell, you know, Auntie Mary because she's a part of our life every week. And so what language am I using? Am I telling them that you're on a gender journey and we're using these pronouns? Am I saying, hey, my child uses these pronouns right now. Um, and so when you're around, you know, we'd love for you to use them too. 
kind of a thing. And I think the key conversations are to have with your child because it is their story and you want to be clear. Some kids that I know will say, tell them I'm transgender and this is my new name and pronoun. And other kids will say, "Uh, I don't need that word yet. That word might freak grandma out or that word is definitely going to freak uncle so-and-so out. And so let's just say I use those pronouns. I don't need to label it. Let's just say that. Advocacy is really important in this role. The data is very clear that when names and pronouns are important to trans kids, they may make a huge difference in depression and anxiety. When a child is asserting that this is something that is very important for their congruence and their alignment and that it is actively upsetting when they are misgendered is the word um, for folks using the incorrect pronouns, right? We, I say the correct pronoun or just your pronoun instead of preferred. So when, when kids are misgendered and it's uncomfortable for them, this is another time for those of us parents who've been advocating for our kids and what they need differentially in the world. This is the time where we go to bat and we say, this is really important for our family. If you have a learning curve around this, you know, you can ask me any questions that you want. I'm learning too. Part of it's your personal style. You know, some people are cheekier in those situations and come up with, you know, one-liners to say versus just saying, hey, you know, this is what we're doing and thank you for joining us. And if you can't, you know, that makes me sad, but here's what we're going to do because I'm all in it with my kid right now. I don't know where we're headed, but I know I'm all in and and we'd love to have you along as a support and an ally. Uh, and so that means using these names and, and pronouns. And if you slip, you know, people sometimes feel like they're going to be under the gun if they make a mistake. If you slip up, I always I will ask the young person, hey, or I'll talk to young people and say, usually it takes a little while for brains to switch gears if there's been an automatic association around how to you know address you. So when folks mess up, let's just remind them, just make a quick correction. Well, you know, why don't you take that over to her, him, him. And then keep going. Don't have to stop. Not like the needle in the old days dragged across the record, but but recognize that that there was a mistake. Fix it quickly. Keep moving. Um, schools. There is Gender Spectrum has a gender support plan, which is super detailed. Don't recreate the wheel. Um, go check it out on their website. It's they have thought of all the places where gender and schools rub and ways to talk to schools about it. Um, I can tell you that again, some kids in the community are like, I don't really care if the PE teacher gets it wrong. Honestly, I just want my closest circle to know Um, that does not cause me distress. Whereas other kids are, are, are deeply impacted when anyone misgenders or, or uses uh, an old name. And so if your child is saying that this is a source of stress for them and you and and people that's one of the reasons to have a team is that I know to assess we know to assess how's that working what is not working where is misgendering happening what do you need that isn't happening what do you need more of what do you need less of talk talk to us let's stay in communication about this then there really is a need for advocacy one of the most protective things that we can do for non-binary and trans kids is get their names and pronouns right and gently but firmly hold people around them accountable for doing the same. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. And listeners just know that I will have an extensive show notes page for this episode where there'll be a list of resources, including gender spectrum and, and other places to learn more, some books to read. Laura had recommended a number of uh, resources for us in the last episode. And actually I would love if you could tell us about the way that you are now supporting families who are on this journey through the offerings and, and the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and that's perfect. I will be happy to talk about what I do. And I also want to say, this is a great time to be, I think it's really important for parents when they start poking around on the internet about this stuff. There are a few resources that have been really highly publicized recently that are in community accepted as uh, intentionally or unintentionally anti-trans, even though they're sort of packaged differently. <laughs> so, you know, there's one that talks about this, the um, folks assigned female at birth uh, as like a craze where we're, we're losing girls. And, and I just, it, it gets a lot of media attention. And so folks find it pretty quickly in Google searches. And this is a nod to say to parents, 
Start with the known places that are affirming and thoughtful. Um, it doesn't mean that if you're seeking a gender specialist that the answer is always going to be full speed ahead and that gender specialists do not think critically about your child as a whole. So check out Gender Spectrum. Um, there's Mind the Gap, M-I-N-D-T-H-E-G-A-P is a list of providers. It's associated with the UCSF clinic and Diane Aronsaft, who's written a lot of books. Any book by Diane Aronsaft is fabulous. Um, Stephanie Brill has done the transgender child and transgender teen. And then I have some online courses for folks at um, Thinkific. If you just look up Dr. Laurie Anderson and Thinkific on exactly some of these things, how to talk to extended family, how to talk to your child, how to understand the differences in, in, in language and things. And so there are some courses you can find at my website, drlaraanderson.com. And I've rolled out a new podcast too in the last couple of months, which I'm uh, happy that we got to chat about uh, there too. So that is real world parenting, uh, supporting kids and families on uh, paths left traveled. And so all those links can be found on my website and I'm going to continue to roll out sort of offerings and things for parents to join me because I know this is a, a, a tricky, confusing, new, beautiful, complicated journey for the whole family. Yeah, thank you for all of those resources. Again, I will have them also on the show notes page for this episode. So definitely go check those out. And, you know, I'm just so grateful. I was thinking how we met, we both spoke at an event in the Hague um, through Families in Global Transition many, many years ago. And um, I'm just really happy that our paths have crossed. I really respect and appreciate the work that you do. Well, I'm thrilled to be able to overlap in community. And since we met, I've had several people who are overlapping um, with your world. And it's so, I just think this, this, this parenting journey, just if we do, we need our folks and we need to be able to lean in and lean on and walk with each other. So it's, it's an honor. Thanks. I'm going to ask you one last question. That would have been such a perfect note to end the episode on, but I, I'm going to ask one last question. And that is just for a parent who is listening to this, who is so grateful to hear your advice and your calm message of support and affirmation, and they're feeling scared, overwhelmed, uncertain, and afraid for what might lay down the road in this journey. Do you have maybe just one word of encouragement or support for those parents? I do. I think I, first of all, I want to say, I t- again, and this is one of the things I talk about a lot and why I center parents a lot of my work too, is that even the most loving, affirming, flag waving, uh, you know, P flag chapter opening parents on the planet recognize that that when kids are doing unexpected things, when kids are living on the edge of an envelope of a learning that many of us know resonates and feels right, but others really haven't had the exposure to the openness or willingness to learn about, we do worry for our kids walking that path. And I think what I would say is it's really important to find space for you yourself to get support in those worries. That it, you have to have a place and space to to be real about what you're worried about, even if you don't want to be worried about what you're worried about or to be sad about the parts that you're sad about. You're not sad your child is who they are, but you're sad maybe that that people around them are going to have to be flexible or that they may experience more rejection or, or there, there can be parts of this that are sad. It's okay to feel sad about the sad parts and not be sad that your child is who they're telling you they are. You need space to sort through that stuff in community with other parents who get it and um, with professionals who can support you through that so that you can come out. I don't even say there's another side that you can keep moving forward, having mucked through the, the very real hard and uncomfortable feelings to be able to recognize there there's literally, you know, like a whole world of, of new resources for you to connect to new people. Your child will bring people, places, and things into your life on this journey that would not have been there that will enrich in it. And that will allow you to think and, and be different and learn new things and accept challenges and find fascinating stuff that you didn't know existed. But, but you need space for both. 
I find that if parents rush too quickly toward, it's going to be okay, there's a fabulous community, and they're, and they're not spending time with what is a part of this process, then it's harder to actually welcome in the cool new things and the new people and the allies that you're going to find on this, this path. So, so there is a beautiful community of growing parents learning how to do this and ways to connect with them. Uh, online and in person, pretty much wherever you are in the world is my experience. So this is an invitation to, to, to make space for the hard parts and then dust yourself off and connect. I'm so glad I asked that question. Uh, Thank you. It was wonderful. And um, Laura, thank you again so much for spending so much time um, with us today. This is an extra long episode, but I know it will be so appreciated by our listeners. So I just want to say thank you for being a part of this community and for sharing with us today. Thanks, Debbie. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.